This is the fucking normal podcast. The cheers, tears and Friday night beers of parenting disabled children. I'm Rena And I'm Lauren. And we're both mothers to daughters with special needs. Parenting a disabled child can often feel difficult to navigate. If this is you, you're not alone. We're here to share unique parenting stories and chat about the things that we've learnt and are still learning. Prepare to sometimes laugh, sometimes cry, but hopefully leave with a shot of optimism in your arm. And don't forget, we are talking from a parent's perspective. We would never presume to talk on behalf of a disabled child or adult. So expect bad language and, quite frankly, some brutal honesty. Because really, what the fuck is normal anyway? Wake me up, loud as clouds, all my love for you. Hello and welcome to the last episode in this series of the Fucking Normal podcast. Things are a bit different this week. The Fucking Normal community have asked to hear a little more from our hosts. I'm Genevieve. You may recognise me from episode one, where I had the honour of being the first podcast guest. Well, now it's my turn. Haha. <laughs> and today I'm going to be putting our hosts in the hot seat and finding out more about their stories. Ooh, I don't know why I did that. <laughs> we love an ooh, ooh don't we? <laughs> I mean, thanks, Lonely Jen, for coming back on. It's the nervousness, I think. Oh, we're a bit scared. Very scared. <laughs> I was going to ask, how are you both, and how are you feeling about being on the other side of the mic? Scared. You have all the power, which I hate. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel okay about it, though. I guess we just need to, yeah, tell a bit more of our stories. So the theme of today is going to be about acceptance, something that has come up really often in all of our episodes with our other guests and something we'd like to hear more about from the both of you. We'd like to hear about the stories from the beginning all the way to where you are now. I'll start with a little introduction to our wonderful co-hosts. Lauren is mum to Olivia and B and lives with husband Patrick in North London. Originally from Newcastle-upon-Tyne, Lauren has lived in London since 2005 and now considers herself a bit of a southern softie. Hmm. (laughs) As well as hosting the Fucking Normal podcast, Lauren is a school governor, governor, (laughs) uh, a fellow pond swimmer, wonderful pianist and runner. In fact, She's off to do the London Marathon this weekend for Great Ormond Street, a cause, as you can imagine, close to all of our hearts. And our wonderful Rena, mummy to Lua and a fellow North Londoner. Although not born here, she has lived in the city since her parents emigrated from Kosovo in the 90s. Away from motherhood and podcasting, Rena is a copywriter for an online beauty retailer. She loves yoga, true crime podcasts and a good cold pint with the fucking normals. <laughs> so let's find out more. Why don't we start with you, Rena? Tell us about pregnancy and Lua's birth and how things were in those early days uh, for you and your family. I fell pregnant with Lua out of the blue. She was an unplanned pregnancy, uh, but obviously very happy. Um, And then in the initial scan, they kind of found that something was amiss with her nuchal fluid being kind of triple what it needed to be. And we had the amniocentesis, um, which came back clear. That in itself was like incredibly stressful. Just the waiting Mm. like you've done something and then you're just waiting for the answers Mm. and it took a good like two weeks and I swear to god I was like glued to my phone just waiting for that doctor's appointment and when they call it's so annoying why do they do this like we're working so obviously it goes straight to message and then they're like can you call us back yeah they're not allowed to give the information in a message at least say like nothing to worry about or say look it's quite urgent do you mind like ringing us back so you, you kind of like bed basically or stress but no mm. it was like can you call us back oh can you come in actually it wasn't even call us back can you come in i was oh, like oh, to really ouch. yep oh. i was like shit man this is crap this is gonna be something awful uh we went back and it was clear and i was like jesus 
fucking Christ, like all of that for this, you know? So from then it was much calmer and I kind of got to enjoy my pregnancy a little bit more. I was like, okay, cool. And then your body starts to change and that in itself is something else. And then we had another scan and they kind of were like, oh, hold on her heart. There's something amiss but we can't tell from the scans what's going on, but there's something. And I was like, oh, not again. Like, what is this? Um, but I think my anxiety, because of kind of that initial 12-week scan, I was like, oh, God, there's something going on. So Lua would just never be still during a scan. So we never got a full picture throughout the nine months at all of what was going on. So there was always a question mark of everything's fine she's growing right like she's meeting all the bits the the percentiles of growth and head shapes fine and all the fingers and toes and everything but just there's something so it wasn't until she was born that we kind of got more of a picture she was born my birth was very relaxed had lots of classical music and it was just i could not imagine a better birth considering all the stress of the pregnancy Mm. the birth was like the best bit Mm. and yes I was drugged to the nines but it was like relaxing and it was fine and she came out they put her on my chest but she was blue and then it was like Mm. oh crap um had to be intubated immediately shipped to the NICU we had um they'd already told us that she would go to the NICU immediately because there was this question mark about her heart and obviously it's a when they're little and heart conditions, you know, it's quite deadly if it's not picked up and treated immediately. We always assumed that it was something that could be fixed with a surgery once she was born. So we kind of went in with that idea that there's something going on with the heart and it could be fixed and then she'll stay in hospital for a bit and then we'd go home. And that would be that. that that's it. Mm. So that's kind of how I went into it and I was prepared like it wasn't when she was taken away to the NICU it wasn't like a shock to me it was just like I already know that this is the journey that I'm on right so I'd already accepted that I wouldn't have her in the ward with me and all of that I already was that helpful like at the time do you think oh yeah massively I think it would have been much worse if she was born and then suddenly they're like oh god we're gonna intubate her I'm gonna take her away from you I think I would have lost my mind but I already knew that that was going to happen. I already knew that Arbs would go with her. And my, that's that's also why my mum was at the birth with me. So she'd stay with me and he was off with her. So I wasn't alone, um, which was very helpful. And I love that. Having said that, once I had given birth, uh, obviously I had to uh, be moved to a different ward. And I was waiting there, had the curtains drawn. I'll never forget. And this woman put this woman in that room there was like three other women in there all with the curtains closed so we couldn't see anything she was like moaning clearly in labor and they were like hold on hold on we're just getting the room ready for you like hold on don't push and she was there and she happened to be albanian and she was there with her husband and her two sons because i could hear them talking and she was in labor and she says to her husband in kosovo like go and get me some water just get out of here so she ships him off and she starts going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then all I hear is, wah, wah. and she like just gives birth. I was, it, it was that moment where I was, it, I just broke down. It was like that bitch gets to give birth in five minutes and has her baby on her chest and it's all fine. Like the nurses rushed in and they were like, what, what the fuck? we told you to wait but also oh my god and they measured him and I could hear it all and I was just in tears and the nurse my nurse came in like opened the curtain saw me and was like oh my god I'm so sorry and she just moved me away thankfully they put me on a ward with other mums whose kids were also in the NICUs so none of us on that ward had our kids with us which was so helpful because I couldn't stand hearing other children like other babies crying and Mm. mothers dealing with their kids so it was very nice to be on a quiet room I think that's just incredibly important I think I would have it would have just been horrible if I was to hear other parents but anyway so I I was that bit upset me but also I already knew that this is kind of how it was going to be and then we I went to see Lua like six hours after I'd given birth to her and she was uh, they'd taken the intubation out, so she was, wasn't was intubated. She was asleep, and she looked so peaceful and sweet, and I wanted to pick her up, and the nurse was like, no, 
you can't hold her yet. So I could, I've got pictures of me with my hand on her tummy and that's it. Jesus. And I was like, I was immediately like, who the fuck are you to tell me what to do with my mm-hmm. kid? But also she's connected to all these cables. I don't even know how to pick her up. Mm. And all the emotion. So I was quite bitching. I was like, why? Also, I was like 25 and like it's a bit of a, that she's my kid. And she's like, she's been poked and prodded and touched so much in her first six hours. Just give her some time to just calm. And that also then made me feel really selfish. So I was like, okay, fine. But it's your natural instinct yeah, as a mother to want to, you, you need every that. hormone in your body is asking to connect to that baby. Yeah. So it's com- takes you completely out of what's coming natural to you. True. Was the six hours because you'd had an epidural? So yeah, 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 yeah I had the same, yeah. So it was like, but I slept and I was, it was such a strange kind of time because I had kind of given myself well, I like had I don't even know how to describe it, but I had just given myself up to this situation, so mm. I just went with the flow. Like, okay, I've given birth, she's over there, I'm gonna rest, and I'm not gonna think about anything else. So it was like very calming. I was really calm. I don't know if it was just like all of the hormones or something going on in my mind, but I was just really calm. Like. I think if that had happened to me now, I would be a mess. But I was just calm. Like, okay, this has happened. Let's get on with it. It was also, I think, quite... I think I detached from the situation quite a lot. And it wasn't until kind of a couple of months later where other things went on that, like, the penny dropped. And I was like, oh, shit. Oh, this is life now. So it did take a long time for me to kind of accept the situation in question on acceptance there um it was just it was a whirlwind anyway we ended up being in hospital for seven and a half months and wow yeah at four months she got her tracheostomy so those four months it was like touch and go every day we didn't know whether she survived like that day and i think i blocked out how dire the situation was until a nurse I became friends with the nurses there obviously you're spending like 12 hours a day there you're inevitably gonna get talking Mm. and make some really strong connections and I think one of the nurses realized that I was not understanding the situation like what what's going on or how where Lua is in terms of her health and she said to me I think it was horrible, but also I needed the reality check. Like, I needed to understand what was happening. She said, I was looking through, you know, at the end of the beds, they have the paperwork with all the drugs and things and the charts and whatever. And we're not allowed to look at it. And I, (laughs) which is ridiculous because it's like your child, you should be able to know what they're writing about your child, what's going on or whatever. Anyway, she had like three different drugs on the side that they weren't on her charts. I was like, what's this? She's like, do you really want to know? I was like, yeah, of course, like, what the hell is it? And she's like, we have Lua's three meds in case her heart stops and what to do if she passes or if she's dying, basically. We have that on her chart at the top of the page because we are waiting for it, basically. And I was like... It's something they'll need to know immediately. immediately so yeah. it has to be there. It has yes. to be there. And I was like, what? What? What do you mean her heart's going to stop? She's like her heart rate it was like 220 that was like resting heart rate yeah which is incredibly fast baby's heart rates are fast anyway but mm-hmm. that's like double what it should be they're like usually in the hundreds and she's 220 resting sleeping so they were like it looks as if her heart will stop because it's going to give up if it's beating that fast you know and i was like oh shit what the fuck and i kind of like dropped just it it's just it was like a ton of bricks and I was like oh wow okay and then I was like okay I'm going to love this child as much as I can while I'm here it gave me more motivation to like be there even more consistently so like I wouldn't even go downstairs to get a sandwich I'd go down and get it to eat it by her bed so I would not leave her side at all until she got her tracheostomy and I think that just changed her life because her heart rate was beating so fast because she needed to breathe. So 
that's why her heart rate was so fast. But once she got the tracheostomy, she could breathe easier. So her heart rate came down. The drugs disappeared from the chart. Yeah. She was much calmer. Wow. I started to take days off. So my mum would kind of be like, I know you're obsessed with being by her bedside. I will look after her for like three, four hours. Go, go away. <laughs> Leave us. Even the nurses would say, enough, just go. How did that She's feel fine. at that time? Could you do that? I was so exhausted. And yeah, I was like, I need to get away. But then yeah. the guilt when you're away, you're like, oh man, what if something happened? And I will never forget one of those days I took a day off and I literally just went I wanted to do something normal and something that I used to enjoy doing so like I wanted to go shopping I hadn't been shopping since pre like buying baby clothes and like the Mm. enjoyment of that I want to emulate that kind of vibe so I'm going to go shopping I was out for an hour and the nurses called me they're like her heart rate is really high come back and I was like oh my fucking god what I ran back, literally, I got back to the hospital within half an hour, walked in, I picked her up, sat down, and I just watched the monitor. It was like, two something, dip, 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 dip. As soon as she was on you. Immediately. Oh, wow. It was like insane. I was like, you little shit, you missed your mummy. You didn't even want me to have a day off, and the nurses would laugh. Because I was self preserving in that time, I didn't, I was too afraid to build a connection with her. I, I was like, she could go at any time. So I'm, I can't, I don't want to build a connection with her just in case she goes. Were you actually cognitively thinking that though? Or was no. that, you, now you look back, you realise that's, yeah. that's, that's what, what I was doing. doing. Protecting yourself. Protecting myself. Yeah. So I knew she was my daughter. I loved her, all of that. But I didn't want, looking back, to be as connected to her. And I, because she was watching us, and kind of just laying. She couldn't turn, she couldn't lift her head, she couldn't do anything. So I didn't realise that she had already built a connection with me. I knew that she had built one with Arbs because he did skin to skin with her immediately. So when he would be around her, her eyes would just be drawn to him. With me, I would be like, she thinks I'm a carer, she thinks I'm a nurse, like she has no, she doesn't understand that I'm her mummy. But when that happened, with a heart rate dip here, I was like, oh. She's like, you're not going shopping without me, mum. We are shopping together Together. from now on, okay? (laughs) I needed that. And it it just, it started that process of me building that connection with her because I realised that actually she feels something for me. It's very strange. Like very, you don't realise these things as you're living through. I didn't realise any of this until... I had therapy <laughs> yeah and you start to think about how you acted previously but anyway so that happened and then so that was four months and then once you have a tracheostomy you have to have your your home ready you have to have carers in place you have to be trained in order to deal with the tracheostomy and the tapes and then blah, blah, blah. so it took another three months before we were signed off to come home so then once i came home that was a whole other was petrifying and also because I had I had left her alone with nurses overnight and then in the mornings or whatever like when you're in hospital you literally (laughs) you get very spoiled as a parent because you can literally be like hello I need some help can someone run her a bath can someone get me this can you get me this da 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 when you're at home alone because you're obviously went back to work home alone with this baby who was connected to these machines and fully my responsibility now I was petrified I was so scared of like everything and now eight months old as eight months old yeah as well so you hadn't had the None of them, full yeah. experience of everything of I don't know the amount of nappy changing that there yeah, is the yeah. the feeding and all of that there nothing was, no it was like here's your baby it, I li- it, she literally felt like a newborn you know how like some parents say give birth to this kid and then off you go it's your responsibility yeah. Yeah, literally it was so scary and obviously I had the carers in the night so once when they would come in I'd be like Whew, I can breathe like now mm. she's your responsibility and I get to go and like relax because it's intense. Although she wasn't doing much, she wasn't feeding, like everything was machine operated. It was still 
petrifying because she had been so unwell for so long and like the tiniest sniffle a little bit of a runny nose i'll be like right that's it we're being shit back of course i was constantly worried that they were gonna take her away <laughs> so and on a much higher level than other mums would be with uh-huh. their newborns yes yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was intense. It was crazy. I suppose as well you hadn't had the experience that other parents may have had with going to mother and baby classes and um, experience of seeing other children similar ages. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that affect you be- then being at home at that point? It was... When we were in the hospital, we were on a ward with children there was two other children with tracheostomies and another um, little boy who had similar it didn't have a tracky but he was very similarly ill like Lua so we we had like a sort of gang in the room so she had some engagement with other children but it was not it's in a hospital setting like there's only so much you can do you know once we came back I was so scared that she'd get ill or something would happen I just retreated like I would not go to baby mum baby classes like at all I left the house to go on a walk when I got really depressed and need to get out of the house or go and take her to appointments and at that age she had appointments like three times a week yeah every week mm-hmm. it's it was intense I wouldn't leave for anything else so I just wanted I'd finally had her back like not back but like I had had all to myself was not gonna spend any time doing anything else just bonding and trying to build a bond and try and keep her healthy happy and safe so i didn't do anything else yeah gosh (laughs) it was intense i I forget i I really forget how much we had gone through Mm -hmm. like you are honestly like on a train with like blinders on and you're just as a, a fellow guest said, you just keep trucking. Like, yeah. you just don't think about it until... I've got no choice. Yeah. My early days experience was quite different. Mm-hmm. I was, I think, largely in denial for at least the first year of her life. Mm-hmm. And so I was, at that point, trying to do all the interaction and young baby stuff. The stuff that I'd done with Olivia. Mm-hmm. So I'd sort of had an experience of it that I tried to sort of semi-replicate with B and yeah and keep busy and that was kind of not perhaps what we both needed at times I guess I'll tell my birth story as well yeah to, mm-hmm. just to kind of rewind so pregnancy was relatively normal and very similar to you my birth was I mean god every birth's different and then and then every birth in some at some level even if it's horrendous is beautiful yeah. but I feel like B's birth was it was so quick I mean it was like three hours she oh, just wow. like whooshed out wow <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't, yeah the one thing I remember really is feeling like my body completely just was like don't even think Lauren I'm taking over oh wow in it fact, knew what to do basically. it knew exactly what to do in fact the, in the hospital like when they went in they were like oh I'm not sure that you're and then they looked at me oh yeah you are you know like I was like four or five centimeters anyway so yeah she came really quickly and it was all like a blur um I didn't have any pain relief or anything it was all just so fast oh, wow. um kudos and, to you well Damn. no it was like it was kind of no choice it was just this is happening so now quick, yeah. this is happening now anyway so she was born and they did the initial you know mm-hmm. weighing the baby and stuff and then she, I had her and then Patrick went home because we had a one-year-old at home so mm-hmm. he went back to see Olivia who was with my mum and I stayed overnight and because it was late I ended up staying in a room next to where I'd given birth on the labour ward and I was kind of left on, overnight on my own uh, with B and I knew something was not quite right I hate saying that but you know like mm-hmm. something there was she was struggling with feeding I couldn't get her to feed I kept buzzing the nurses all through the night and they kept coming in and just being like oh it's just all this mucus from the birth but I just had this feeling yeah. that Anyway, next morning I sort of put it to back of my mind, got her dressed. Going she, home she, out Well, it. <laughs> it wasn't quite, it was like a first, because we had to go to have the, the proper head-to-toe review 
we had to go to another room for that so I put her in like all these clothes and then she went in the little trolley thing mm -hmm. and I like was taking photos of her like this yeah. is her first little trip somewhere <laughs> um I mean it's just so ridiculous isn't it but you all do it Patrick hadn't got into the hospital yet and I was like texting him saying come on come on in and there was a nurse and she looked at B and she wrote lots of things down and I was kind of just standing up being fussy you know not new mom but you know fussy mom and she said oh, okay um so she's got a cleft palate and I think she's got down syndrome damn and just I was just like what what did you say and I was like standing up so I just sat down and I was just you know obviously as well I'd just given birth my head wasn't in the right place and I just remember being like a big punch in the gut what oh is going God. on now what a thing to say yeah that. it was really strange the way she delivered it and then because she'd said the words down syndrome and lots of people were rushed into the room and like consultants and stuff to do a proper review of B and they said clinically she doesn't have down syndrome she does have the curved palate she has other things going on and then at that point B had some problems breathing and went a bit bluish and then they whisked her off into the NICU and God. I was left in that room with the woman who told me really? so they'd confirmed that she didn't have Down syndrome yeah they, did they apologize yeah so they did it's all a bit blurry in that period so we went into she went into neonatal and they had to run a whole bunch of tests because also she'd had this breathing episode because there were a few things that were noticed. So she actually was fine, like her breathing mm -hmm. was fine subsequently. I think it was to do with the cleft palate and just, mm -hmm. and she had Pierre Robin and a foot abnormality. Like, But they kept just saying, oh, this can happen in utero. So the cleft palate and the feet, they put down to her being her position in the utero. And I'll never forget the consultant. She just, every time she saw me, she would just be going, it's nothing more than that. It's nothing, it's nothing. Oh, God. And they ran all these tests. Well, we went to Gosh, to the cleft team, and then we were discharged eight days later or something. So we went in for that long. Mm -hmm. And then a week after that, so when B was two weeks old, we went back to the hospital for another heart scan, another check up um, because it, we, we were just going off a list of all the major organs that they needed to have various tests done and look at. I think it's because they said Down syndrome it kind of kicked a process in to, uh, yep, yep, as well as yeah, yeah as well as the fact that there were some abnormalities spotted mm. at birth and the scan was fine and they were like oh yeah the heart's fine the uh, cardiologist was like all like cheery and like you delivered the news and we came out and the consultant had come to meet us and she said oh um we've got back some results um i'm just going to find a room in my head i never connected why she would need to find a room like talking of acceptance i think i found it really hard in a hospital in those early days that i couldn't breastfeed be never breastfed mm. and I found it really hard knowing that she had the cleft palate and she had the foot abnormality and she was quite small and some of the little things that we we knew about I'd been processing and trying to accept and I think I'd got to a point where that was like oh that's like nothing and I totally accept it and B is brilliant um I mean she is brilliant regardless full stop yeah I was in a really good place and then they took us into the room and said we ran all the genetic testing on her blood and we've found that she's got 18q deletion syndrome mm. and patrick and i just were completely blindsided yeah um, so you hadn't considered that there was an overriding condition no that these were the symptoms of? no i think well one because you we we just hadn't i hadn't think like that it hadn't crossed my mind but also they just kept saying to me it's fine it's fine mm. It's and fine, that's, it's all, only that's the only information you can take is yeah. what they're saying yeah that's exactly. a very quick diagnosis yeah really quick. so I think there was like there was definite benefits to that in that we knew from like day dot almost that you know there was some potential I hate saying challenges challenges that B would have to overcome but it, mm. it we knew but there was a lot of unpredictability like a lot of like all of our kids some kids are impacted 
more severely than others and it will impact on different things and there's a huge like variation within 18q mm. and a lot not known and very few case studies so we were given these case studies to go home with and, oh and a little leaflet printout and we went and sat in a cafe i'll never go in that cafe again um and <laughs> and we're just distraught mm. Um, and then we went home, like brave faces for Olivia. And then at night, I remember phoning our parents and hearing Patrick like break down on the phone to his parents. And it was like, like I'd never heard him cry. He's not, he he's just not somebody who emotionally breaks down like that. And feeling quite, I don't know. It was just, a, it's just a strange, surreal time, isn't it? Mm. Um, so yeah, that was that was our birth story and then yeah we had the support and the interventions and all the appointments that you you know like out of hospital constantly and I think I just thought I could be superwoman and I'm curious because you had that diagnosis so quickly so Dylan wasn't fully diagnosed with a condition until he was three years old and I think that put me in a state of denial because not having the diagnosis and therefore any examples of what could happen in the future, yeah. I was dead set on him being able to walk and making sure that that was going to happen. So physio was top of the list to do every day and everything, all the other treatments, occupational therapy as well and, and anything we needed to go into hospital for. And I'm curious as to whether, so you had a similar, similar that I think we both have similar ways of needing to control everything and a mm-hmm. sort of sense of denial in a similar way of that detachment that mm. you had, Rena, of being like, okay, what do I need to do? I need to do this. This is something that I need to focus on. How, how do you think that sort of manifested itself into the day-to-day of needing to control things and then were there any moments within that that helped you reach new levels of acceptance and maybe took you out of denial yeah I've talked about it before but I did I I was just militant about trying to do everything so you asked about knowing from early on I guess we didn't know what the future no one does but I was going to make damn sure that I did everything I could to make possibilities for B and the opportunities for B as great as I could and I would flip probably from doing every therapy and reading about every therapy that I could to then like moments of just I guess partly the denial but wanting to go out and let my hair down and have time away from it so I was you know jumping from one extreme to the other I remember being pregnant with B and we went on holiday and I was with Olivia obviously and she was little and I remember feeling a bit guilty because I was like about to have another baby and but she still needs me because she's so little and we were by a swimming pool and I looked at the swimming pool and I just had this image of oh now I'm going to have these two wonderful daughters and I'm going to be jumping from the side of that pool into the water with one daughter in each hand And I had this thing in my head, and I remember like kicking back with music in my ears. I think I was listening to Lana Del Rey or something, and it was like all very chilled and visualizing this. Then, when you get this news that, Mm -hmm. given the case studies, she may not walk, she may not do this, she may not do that, this is going to be different this time around. Mm -hmm. I remember rethinking that image, and you know, I have to say, B7 now. I'm still not in a position that I can hold both kids' hands <laughs> and jump into the swimming pool with them. But we will do that on, you know, our way at some stage oh, yeah, in the will. future. We'll we'll figure it out. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because you you've got to let go of that. And I think it's it's a there were things that helped, but for me, it kind of crept. That acceptance kind of crept in over time because. I was learning to let go of some shit, learning mm-hmm. not to control everything because you just physically can't. Mm. 
listening to Patrick when he tried help me to let go of shit and tell me that like it was really important that I also look after myself mm-hmm. um and as you get to know your child because they're not a syndrome no they are who they are both my daughters are wonderful human beings i would say because i'm massively biased and you know <laughs> they they'll they'll be who they'll be and like in the meantime the most important thing is just pour so much love into them and you know stop agonizing over what the future can bring because yeah i think all of that stuff we all we all we all know that in theory but i think over time you start to really live that and mm. think that but it's gradual and i don't think it's finished it's not like you wake up and go oh everything's great now this is our life and that stays with you there are always setbacks and moments and i think and i challenge myself you know like um sometimes we'll be trying to do something to help me and then i'm like thinking oh am i doing this really to help her to be more independent or am i trying to mold her or to make Mm. my life easier yeah um and maybe that's like Patrick would say. Well, maybe that's okay. Maybe it's okay to have your life easier as well. Mm. Yeah. I, so you have to question question those decisions. Yeah, and yeah, and maybe it's not so much whether you're helping her to be independent, but it's like, is it you doing it in the right way right. at the right time? Mm. You know, maybe she's not ready yet for that. It's, it's really hard, hard. I have the thing where what I've noticed recently, which is makes me kind of think about what I'm doing is like when they start to do something new and then you're like oh and then you want them to do loads of other things at the same time yeah and it's like the pressure you're giving them so like with Lua she's she's only started eating in the last year so Lua's still non-verbal but she communicates with her hands and Makaton and once she started to eat which was like I've worked for six years to try and get her to eat orally once she started doing that I was like right now you're gonna start talking and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and it's like stop just enjoy what she's achieved and let her decide kind of Arbs has always been kind of the voice in my head because he was accepting of her like immediately it was like an instant okay she's born with additional needs and we didn't get a, a diagnosis for six months Having said that, when the doctors... Once she was born and they took her to the ward to, like, look at her and do the head-to-toe. Yeah. And obviously they checked her heart immediately. Mm. And the cardiologist, we were standing there and kind of we were expecting something to do with the heart because that's kind of what we had been told would be the problem. He looked at her and he just went, I think she's got Noonan syndrome. Wow, very similar story. Immediately, and I was like, A, syndrome, like, we'd never considered a syndrome like a syndrome was not in our minds it was only a heart condition probably a hole in the heart or something else and surgery symptoms rather than than yeah yeah. so when he said syndrome like my my feet were just gone like i just wanted to faint it took so long and i because it took six months for the diagnosis so i was constantly no she doesn't have it if she had it they would have told us by now come on it's fine. She doesn't have anything. It's, right. It's fine. So you were in denial before the Totally, news. yeah. Totally in denial. I started to ask, because it was like six months, I was like, I, I need confirmation that she doesn't have it. Like, come on, enough. You know? And I started to ask the consultants, you know, about Noonan syndrome and syndromes in general. And I, three consultants were like, <laughs> I don't know whether they said this to make me feel better or whatever. Even the geneticist, two consultants and a geneticist all said to me, if I could pick a syndrome, I would pick Noonan syndrome out of them all. And I was like, okay, so mustn't be that bad, you know? And they were like, it's, you know, it's they tend to have... a strange thing to say, isn't it? Yeah, they were like, they tend to have normal lives and they can, you know, doesn't affect them that much, la 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 la. When we did get the diagnosis, she has the rarest form of Noonan syndrome, which means that they have a lot of additional needs... And is not as like the, yeah. yeah. And Noonan syndrome is kind of like autism. There's a massive spectrum. So, although they said that to help me, it really did not at all. Because when I did get the diagnosis, it was like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's <laughs> a bit like them saying, "Oh, it's nothing to me." Yeah, and literally. then like, oh, actually, it is. It is. It's a big deal. <laughs> um, yeah, that's mad, mm. isn't it? Mm. That's hard. But like, I think I'm grateful that the word Noonan syndrome was floated around so early, so that it wasn't so much of a 
shock when it was confirmed. Yeah, it was out of the blue. No. Although in that moment, like for eight, I'm going to say seven and a half months of her, of me being pregnant with her, syndrome was not a thing. Like yeah. it wasn't even, it was just like, oh, I'm pregnant, but my kid is going to have surgery on her heart and it's all going to be fine. And that's it. We'll go home. And then that first, she was a day on and like, oh yeah, Noonan syndrome. What? <laughs> what? And, and that was like to you the worst the worst thing you could say but then it took some time for you to understand that that may not in fact be the worst yeah. so by the time you got the actual diagnosis were you in in uh, more of a place to be able to accept it i was relieved gone from both i was relieved mm. and because because it took so long because her form was so rare there was at that time only 11 people in the world with the crass form of Noonan syndrome. Wow. So there was hardly any, we didn't get any information on what Noonan syndrome, how the crass form of Noonan syndrome affects. All we had was Noonan syndrome. And you, it's the um, PTTP form, which is the most um, general version of Noonan syndrome, where they tend to like cognitively be relatively normal. Um, they go to mainstream schools and they tend to have uh, feeding issues but you know relatively normal lives so that's kind of what we were imagining and because Lua's facially she doesn't present with Noonan syndrome which is why they were so confused right so they were like she's got some symptoms but not all and facially she doesn't have Noonan syndrome but then her physicalities were so they were very confused like I'm really happy. I was like flying out that office, the room. Mm. Like she's got Noonan syndrome. Yes, yes, yeah. it's a great yes. Easy syndrome. They would all have it if they could. <laughs> so <laughs> fucked up. I think language as well. Like you talk about syndrome, like that can have a must. I remember, like I remember friends and family using the term special needs to describe be or describe her needs when she was a baby still and almost recoiling mm, at them definitely. using that term because I hadn't used that term yet and mm. I used to refer to be as having challenges her, she has a few challenges I mean fuck's sakes we all have challenges <laughs> she had needs mm. um you know and then but then you you know then you find your way with what language you're going to use and I'm still not comfortable with some of the language that I use now I just have to use it because or it's easier to use because that's what therapy school mm. other people around me are using sure. and it fits and it makes sense to people mm -hmm. but yeah I remember having a very visceral reaction to other people defining my child as something which was clearly tied up in how you I was in denial it. and I mm. was, I'd been socialised to think yep. certain things, things about those words. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That is really interesting how language can affect and how your development and understanding of language around disability then changes yeah. how you talk about your child, how you advocate for them and how mm. maybe how you talk on their behalf as well. Yeah, completely. Mm. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it, it took a long time before I actually would refer to be as being disabled i did, just yeah. didn't use that term at all i still hate that word but yeah. it's it's interesting when you when you start to with with dylan and you start to have to access things or accessibility but um access disabled toilets or mm. access access disabled parking you have to use the language to be able to communicate what, communicate yeah. with other people what, what his needs are therefore you don't want to shy away from using it and you have to accept this is a word that society uses for us to be able to access the things he needs to access so using it is going to do him give him more power in the long run yep. than not Absolutely. Um, but it took me a long time to not to exactly think about it in that, that way yeah physical recalling of have to, having to say something because you have been conditioned to believe that this is not not something that is accepted in society yeah and it, it's just also like a, a, the denial of it almost feeling like a definition that you didn't want at that point in time yeah and all the all that comes with that, yeah, completely. I, we definitely will do a, a full episode on language, language. in, in, in yeah. a future series because I think 
it's an important there's a lot one. to say and we, we probably need to learn as much as anything yeah yeah learn, don't we definitely this maybe brings us on to um talking about whether there were any external influences or experiences which contributed to a new level of acceptance for either of you mm. i know with me around that same time that I was thinking more about language and the language I used, I suppose it probably around the same time that um, Dylan started to talk more, mm. I would really start to become interested in the language I was using. And I would be on Instagram following disabled adults um, and read. And it really changed how I spoke around him, how I spoke on behalf of him, but also how we did things um, like physiotherapy because I wanted him to fit into the mould, the normal. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, reading some of those books really made me just completely take my foot off the accelerator. It was actually in lockdown, so it was very magnified and intense mm. what we were doing. It was just me and him. Um, and I just took my foot off and we just chilled and it really helped us both really helped us both mentally um to just flow a bit more in life and become more accepting yeah so i wondered if there was anything in i think the pandemic like i would say i was i i got to a level of acceptance before the pandemic and that was largely through books that i've i'd read um i've mentioned far from the tree before on the podcast that really shook me up as a kind of different way of looking at identity and disability um but then the pandemic really focused the mind on what was important that perspective mm. of family and keeping people safe and that being kind of all you could do and the most important thing i think that really stepped up a level of acceptance for me um that and connecting with other people so <laughs> when B was really quite little still I was set up on a blind date by her <laughs> physio not with a man or, or a lady for sexual <laughs> reasons but <for laughs> my physio asked me if I would like to be put in touch with someone who she thought I might get along with um, and she did the same to my friend Sharon and then I went I got her number, she got my number. We couldn't know much about each other because of patient confidentiality. We were just kind of matched. And then I went knocking on her door uh, after we arranged to meet. And yeah, we've been friends ever since. So I think just having, making those early connections with some people who've got yeah. similar stories or not that similar, but you know, they're, they're experiencing versions that, that overlap. Um, that's cute. I have a very similar one, actually. I completely forgot about this. Um, when when we were in hospital and um, they take you to that dreaded room and they tell you, well, they told us, oh, she needs a tracheostomy, which is like the worst news in the world because it's all this extra work and you've got a thing in your throat, whatever. I obviously had a breakdown in that room in front of like six doctors and it was very upsetting. And the... <sighs> on wards, like they have a, like a clinical lead... And she kind of pulled me aside. She's like, do you want to meet another mum who was in the same position as you, whose son was born here, had a tracheostomy there in the community, whatever. And I was like, no, I don't want to know. Uh, she did it anyway. Got this woman to come in with her son and her older daughter. Uh, she's She waited. They didn't even tell me. She was waiting in the room for me. And Ashlyn was like, she's in there if you want to meet her. You don't have to, but she's here for you if you want to. And I was like... That's amazing. Yeah. And I was like, okay, fine, fuck it. Like, this is a reality, Lua will need this tracheostomy, so I may as well go and meet this mum. And her son was the cutest boy ever. Like, I fell in love with him, and she was just talking about how, yes, he's got a trachea, but they go out, they live a normal life, like, it's fine. And he was showing me, he was three, and he was showing me, like, little tricks, like he was putting his um, finger in his trachea to, like, scream. And <laughs> it was just so cute. And I left, like, walking on air. I was yeah. like, it is not the end of the world. Like, it's fine. Why am I being so dramatic? Like, yes, it's a lot of work and all these things are going to happen. But look how happy this mum is. Look how happy her son was. And then I got to repay that. So once we left hospital, about 
a year on, Ashlyn got in contact with me and was like, we have a mum with a daughter who has just had a tracheostomy and the mum is just really struggling. Can you come in, please? I just want her to see you and Lua. And I came in and I obviously went into Ashlyn's office to meet some of the nurses that we had spent loads of time with and the lady's mother was outside. And I walk out and obviously Lua has, she always wears a bib because she's so drooly and she likes sticks stuff in her mouth so and I don't do it to cover the tracheostomy I do it to keep it dry dry yeah <laughs> so she walked down and she was like oh my god this is Rena look her daughter's got a tracheostomy and the lady's mum was like what where and, and the mum was struggling with the whole concept of trachea and it being so in your face and just so medical which I also struggled in the beginning I hated it like it's the first thing that you notice in a child and i didn't like that you always call them appendages don't you yeah appendages yeah these appendages the bits uh so yeah so she's like where is it how are you oh my god and it uh and ashley was like you've really helped her to understand to see that that it's fine and normal you know and the mum met lua and she just understood she cried and but she saw that it's not a big deal and i just felt like it was just so nice to pay it back because pay I was there yeah. where she was two it's years previously. She's actually a nurse. She's like a clinical lead. She was just the best. It's interesting what you say about as well then, like the kind of how it looks to other people. Because yeah. I think that's a level of kind of acceptance or getting over it. Get over yourself. Get over mm. it. Who cares what other people think? Yes. That, that we all have to sort of experience. Not so much other people's acceptance, but not caring what other people think yeah and actually that can catch you sometimes I think it comes back to kind of having to challenge yourself or I certainly feel I have to challenge myself sometimes because B had this thing not that long ago where her eyes started rolling back in her head a lot and she was under lots of neuro investigations for whether she was having seizures um and I was really really like trying to get to the bottom of it from a neuro perspective and I think I knew that it was probably just a tick and just a kind of habitual thing that she was doing. But I was to the ends of the earth trying to explore what it meant. Is she having a seizure? What's going on? Why neurologically is she doing this? And I think that was a bit, if I'm really honest, I think that was a bit because it it looked so strange when Mm. she did it. Mm. And it was really noticeably strange. And she still does it. She doesn't do it quite as much. She was Mm. doing it a lot more pronounced in that period. And that was me, like, quite far on, you know, into what I thought was a level of acceptance. But suddenly I'm, like, caring about whether my kid does something that looks strange. And it's, you just, it's just ridiculous and not fair on her and a waste of energy um, to be even thinking about it like that. I suppose acceptance doesn't mean everything's okay and you're happy all the time. You just kind of take the days as they come and sometimes they're shit and sometimes they're okay. You just keep going and work through it. I felt the other day um, I was so tired and so stressed, which I think really counts towards it. Um, And I felt really exposed just... Walking in the park with Dylan, it felt like every single person was mm. looking at his wheelchair and you could kind of see their thought process of them, like the, the oh, there's a kid in a wheelchair. Oh, pity. Oh, now he's gone again. And just ugh, oh. annoying. And it just made you want to be at home. But then some days are hard still. Do you have that still? I mean, I've had one, I mean, recently, maybe like six months ago. We were in hospital with Lua doing a checkup about the tracheostomy and we kind of had pinned our hopes that this was it, that we were going to get some good news and maybe a date to have it removed. And we didn't. She's not ready. They needed to do some extra things and they kind of were like removing the trachees on the back burner. And because she made so much progress, we were like, it's bound to happen. Like it's gonna happen. They're gonna mm. take. They're gonna say like beginning of summer. We're gonna like remove it or trial it. La la la. So when they gave us the bad news, it was like somebody had cut my feet, and yeah. I was like oh, just yeah. on the floor, and I was like, oh fuck, because we really didn't expect it. I didn't expect to have the bad news at all. It like wasn't even in my thought process. So then I like you kind of hold it together when you're with the doctors even though I was quite bitchy and I was like what what where is this coming from and I was very snappy 
and Arbs was like holding me back, <laughs> like calm down, you know. And then I just walked away and I went into the gosh, um, like the cafeteria. And I just walked in and there was like all these kids who all had lots of different issues, but none of them had, as I say, the appendages mm. like Lua has. And I just couldn't be there. I was like, I hate you all. I could not stand seeing any child in that moment. I just decided to leave the hospital, <laughs> go and grab a coffee somewhere else where I didn't see any children. Well, that's that's kind of a, a protection and a smart move in a way. Though. Yeah. Like, I think it would be much worse if you were... Seething and yeah. but stayed. Yeah. But I think it's I got over it very quickly. Like I walked in and then that hit it hit, you know, like a cold like a knock and then I was like, right, what are my choices here? It could stay and yeah, seethe and just be annoying or just move, just get out of there and take some time. And I think had this happened a couple of years ago, I would have just I think I would have cried. I would have cried, mm. gone into a deep, dark hole, and it would have just been a spiral of shit. So I've learnt with the acceptance of Lua and her bits and all the diagnoses and everything else that, yes, you get some days that are great and some days that are not. So in that time, she re- got rid of the um, ventilation that she was on. So it was a positive, And so I've learnt to kind of take the positives with the negatives and just keep on trucking. yeah Yeah, I think it's definitely that isn't it it's the learning of acceptance Mm. um that helps you get through the days easier Mm. um even if they're shit ones even if they're good ones yeah Mm. and it's giving yourself time to like allow yourself to feel that and I remember like I sent a message to you guys like I just need to get it out I I couldn't say it to Arbs I think because we were so in a shit place I wasn't going to turn around and be like, I hate kids. Oh, no, no, no. Mm. So I sent you guys a message like, I just need to write it, get out of my system and let it go. And I think it's important to accept your feelings, not bury them. Be I honest about them. Yeah, be absolutely. honest about your feelings in that moment. Yeah. yeah. And actually writing that, I find writing them down so therapeutic. Mm. Literally just gets it all out. It's yeah. all out in the open, whether that's journaling or... In a, text in a safe text message space. <laughs> um, I find that so helpful and it can pass really quickly Yeah, in that way, feeling those feelings and then, okay, it's done. What's next? Yeah, yeah I can dispel it. It's perspective, isn't it? I think, you know, as the acceptance comes, being a parent to kids with disability, you get like this gift. I hate using terms like that, but you get this gift around perspective and what really matters. Yeah. And as you are more accepting of and in a more kind of acceptance place that perspective grows as well I feel like you just like you say you acknowledge that there are going to be bad days or there are going to be things that you don't know that come and hit you and surprise you but then you kind of know how to deal with that better it's perspective that you get it's understanding that you get you get more patient with yourself and with the child there's there's so many things that you learn and get better at as a person as a consequence definitely is there anything either of you think that has actually going from that learning how acceptance has helped you deal with the day-to-day and being kinder to yourselves is there anything that has actually changed in your lives that you can like tangible yeah, yeah that's tangible from that I am being more aware that I can't control everything yes. so my to-do lists was <laughs> always like a bit of an issue for me um like I have to-do lists and I have sub to-do lists and I have to-do lists for different parts of the day and it's it gets slightly <laughs> obsessive um I've been, yeah, much better at kind of... B isn't a to-do list, for fuck's sake. She is a child that needs love and support. So I used to have a kind of, not a B to-do list, but a list of things that, you know, therapies I was going to explore or hospitals that I need to chase or, you know, things I was going to help her to learn. I'm not saying I don't have some of those things still in terms of, you know, obviously there are hospital chasings that you need to do. But I don't, I don't kind of obsess about it or list it out yeah yeah it's like being kind of to yourself like you say about what actually matters and not 
not trying to kind of micromanage and control because it's pointless. Yeah, that's a good one. Definitely. Um, I think for me, what we had a discussion earlier. We were talking about <clears throat> one of the biggest things with acceptance is your own ideas of what you want your child to achieve or do. Oh, and actually, yeah. it's not up to you and your beliefs. It's up to them and when they decide that they're ready to do X, Y and Z. And I think for such a long time, I was so adamant in wanting Lua to get rid of the trackie or walk or whatever that it it marred my acceptance of her as a child, as a individual, because I wanted her to achieve all these things. But actually... I had to get to a point where I accepted her for who she was, yeah, who she is, what her life pattern is without me interfering in that. Yeah. And I think once I got to that, that was the biggest kind of ding moment yeah. for me. It was like, I see you and I'm not going to try. I think once she started to walk, when she walked, I think for me that was the turning point where I was like, okay you are going to do all the things that you're meant to do without me piling on the pressure. Yeah. And I think because she walked so late, she was four and a bit, and it had been, like, a, the, this big thing of, like, why isn't she walking? I want her to walk. I want her to be independent. Push, 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 push. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Yeah. And she was having none of it until she decided, yeah, okay, fine, I'm ready. I'm going to do it. And it was so, like... I, I, it came from her. From then, her, yeah. yeah. And it was so out of the blue. It was so like... But without that pressure. Without, without that pressure, that, and, yeah. and also the setup for failure. Because yeah. if you're pushing someone who is beyond their limitations at that point, yeah. you just feel like you're failing as a mum yeah. and they feel like they yeah. are. And it gets too way too it much. It was hot. I, for, a feeding was like that, that the for eating, me. The thing, eating. Gosh. Oh my God. It was just the worst time of my life. And... I, because I had studied nutrition and love food and it's such a big yeah. part of life for me, for her not to be able to eat was like, I had it in my head, like, you are going to eat. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make you eat. And that was kind of how I went into it. So every therapy that we had, every, I would cry. I would, it was just the worst timing. Like it just, and she hated it. She could feel my deep desire for her to eat but yeah. also she wasn't anywhere near ready so it was just like a fight between her and I and then obviously it's all the blame like what am I doing wrong why is she not doing yeah. this and la 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 Gosh. I just pulled the foot off the pedal for like a year and a half I was like fuck this she don't want to eat she ain't gonna eat and yeah. just stopped completely and then just something happened she just decided actually now is the time it happened so randomly. Like, of course, I would still try and give her stuff to eat or whatever. You still offer, right? Offer. But you just take just no all pressure. the pressure off. Yeah, so exactly the same happened with Dylan. Was... And I just assume, you know, obviously they are fed via a tube. Right, <laughs> and right. they're fed through that time. But yeah, take the pressure off. And oh, the anxiety within me, his yep. anxiety was so much better. And it's that same thing, that acceptance of there are other ways to eat. Yep. You can be tube fed. He's still getting the nutrition. They're still getting the nutrition yes. that they need. Yes. They're still gaining weight. They are still getting everything they need, except that that's the way they're going to do it for the moment. And whatever happens, happens. Yeah. yeah, it's letting go of those like targets and goals that you yeah. set for your child that are based on a set of assumptions that you hold about what their future should be or what yeah. their life should be. Exactly. And just not trying to impose all of that conformity on them but actually let them be who they are yeah. um and i think yeah it's hard though it's, it it's hard. hard and yeah, yeah i'm not gonna pretend there aren't days where i wish that b could communicate better with me oh, it yep. happens all the time that i catch myself thinking about it but you also appreciating the things that they can do and the people that they are because you know Lua's sass and determination and I just love the fact that she decides when she's going to do that just sounds like <laughs> completely Lua yeah um yeah. <laughs> and like when she does want to communicate at the moment B's got a really silly sense of humor if if she breaks wind I like say something I mean and it's very juvenile but she is a child um she will blame 
everybody else like even people that aren't there she'll say like (laughs) and then she'll chuckle to herself because she finds it so funny you know, oh, I love I that. It's the cutest thing ever. Yeah. And flatulence is funny with young Kids. children. Yeah. Let's be honest, it's Hilarious. kind of fun as adults. It's funny as a year old adult as well. Um, like, but- we don't blame our partners when we fuck. Come on now, let's be real. Um, yeah, so just focus on the cans, not the cans. Celebrate. Don't mourn. Like, don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah. I love that one. Having good days and bad days is, is something you have to is be inevitable when of. you have a child with special needs. I think it's just like it's never gonna be plain sailing. It's it's always gonna you're always gonna look to the to the next bump. But I think you just get better at riding that, ride the wave. Ride the yeah, wave. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for coming on my podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, we oh sorry, that slipped out. Thank, well, thank you for Offering your services to, yes, to, to host our podcast. Our, our podcast. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been really fun and I think, yeah, great. Not so scary. No, actually. no, no. Don't mind being on this side of the mic. Okay. May, may consider doing it again. I hope that that's helped mm. listeners to get a bit more of a picture of who we are and my yep. story as well. Yeah. Uh, or our separate stories. Yeah. <laughs> our story together. Yeah. That's another episode. Um, <laughs> anyway yeah brilliant i think it's time to end with uh my fucking normal oh yeah and Uh um we hadn't introduced my fucking normal when it was my episode at the beginning of the podcast that's okay um so i'll start us off um so my fucking normal is my child does not eat orally um but is so fucking passionate about food has taken to feeding me my dinner every night Love it. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. Oh, Dylan. So cute. So, so cute. I can imagine that. And what's yours? Well, my fucking normal is being late because I've had to sit on the pavement or anywhere in the street and wait for my daughter to finish the book that she's reading. Nice. I love that. I love that. <laughs> now we know why you're always late, Lauren. <laughs> now I know. Yeah. Um, my fucking normal is getting over my social dislike of talking to strangers because my daughter's such a social butterfly that she grabs onto any available hand and gives it a kiss. Oh, <laughs> oh they're all adorable. <laughs> I love it. Okay, Thank so you. Cute. I love it. Thank you so much, Jen. It's been great. Yeah. Do do the bye. Okay, bye. All right. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the fucking normal podcast. We love making this podcast. Yes, we do. <laughs> We're part of a much bigger team, almost exclusively all parents of disabled children. And our goal is to reach as many people as possible and create a community of support for parents and carers who share our experiences. So, if you've liked what you've heard, please like and subscribe so that we can reach out to more people. You can find more information on this and other episodes at fuckingnormalpodcast.com. That's F-K-I-N-G normalpodcast.com. You can join us on Facebook and on Instagram at fuckingnormal underscore podcast. That's F-K-I-N-G normal underscore podcast. You can get all the links and more information in the show notes below. So thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.